They say, they say this, they say the secret is in the sauce. You've heard that before, right? The secret is in the sauce. And that's because the sauce is what brings so much flavor. The sauce is what ties elements of a dish together, right? It brings richness. It brings depth. It brings thickness. I love a good sauce, don't you? When Melissa and I were first married, I, I would go hunting around for new sauces, uh, mainly hot sauces, and I'd be trying them on all different sorts of food, uh, trying them on steak, trying them on pizza, trying them on ice cream. Well, maybe not ice cream, but you get the idea. Sauce on everything. Have you ever tried to make a sauce? That's sometimes easier said than done. If you're a uh, you got your saute pan there, and you put your butter in, and, and you put your, your chicken broth, and your garlic, and all the seasonings, and it's, it's really starting to smell good, and you're getting excited about it, and you're thinking, man, the people that I'm having over there are going to be impressed by this stuff. And then at the last minute, all of a sudden, it starts to separate on you. Have you ever ex experienced that? They, they say it starts to break. And you see the oil going here, and your seasoning going here, and stuff just separating all over the place, and it just looks like a mess. And it can be really, really difficult to put a sauce back together once it's broken. I've tried unsuccessfully many times. Broken sauce. You know, our nation kind of feels like a broken sauce, doesn't it? Like a sauce that has so much potential, so much promise. This is so, so fragrant. He tasted it. It's, it's delicious. This is something new. This is something exciting. This is something special. And now it just seems to be falling apart. Everyone's going their own way. Everyone's pointing fingers at each other. Brother against brother. Sister against sister. We all know deep down inside, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And yet here it is. Here we are. We're separated by our fears and our freedoms, torn apart by selfishness and, and desires for self-preservation. We're divided by our ideology and personal preferences. We're entertaining suspicions, keeping secrets, holding on to wounds, and then wounding others. We've walked down a path of division, disintegration, and it's not good. In the beginning, everything was good. In the beginning, there was order. In the beginning, there was cooperation. There was mutual benefit. Life was good. Life was thriving. The world was growing. And yet everything changed when we bought into that lie that we might be able to make things even better apart from God. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And that's exactly what we see happening in Genesis 3. We see an enemy who's bent on destruction, bent on dismantling, bent on disintegrating. That's the story of our planet, isn't it? It's, it's the pattern that everything follows. Things tend towards disorder. And we see it when our food goes bad. We see it when buildings start to, to crumble, paint starts to chip. We see it when our bodies begin to decline. We see it when relationships go sideways 
Our government programs don't really do what they hoped they would do. We see it when our environment starts to suffer. We see it when people turn against one another, accuse one another, fight and tear one another to pieces, don't we? We see it all over the place. None of this is by accident. This is the work of an enemy. Now, I hear people speculate all the time that there is somebody behind the rioting, behind the looting, behind the racism, behind the unrest, behind the dismantling of our nation. There are a few choice names that come up, right? Start bubbling up to service, you can think of those, right? You know them. And yet there's a force that's far more sinister, far more destructive, and far more ancient at work. The Bible calls him a liar, the tempter, the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age, an angel of light, the spirit, now at work in the sons of disobedience. He's the separator. Maybe you're like so many people these days, you're, you're looking around and you're asking, what in, what's going on? It, it, it just seems like the world is going crazy here. Where is the sanity? According to the Bible, whether people know it or not, from the day they're actually born, they're following the separator's lead. They're participating in his work. Their hearts, they're predisposed towards selfishness. They inevitably assist in the dismantling, the disintegrating, and the destroying work. And that's what we've seen time and time and time again in our study in Genesis. We saw it recently in the separating favoritism of Jacob. Do you remember? He favored Joseph over all his other sons, and it created a wedge. It created division. It separated his family. We saw it in, in his children. The ten older ones, in the, in the bitterness, in the jealousy, in the violence that eventually emerged. We saw it. We see it time and time again. A terrible wrong was done to Joseph, remember? Betrayed by his own brothers, thrown into the pit. Well, they were laughing, they were mocking him. You look at that dreamer now. Who's bowing to who? And then they sold him into slavery. As for his father, well, he got properly punished as well, right? Being told, being led to believe that his favorite son was brutally torn apart by a wild animal. Is there any hope for this family? It's so divided, so broken. Is there any hope for a nation as divided and broken as ours? Maybe you've looked at your own life and you've started to ask, is there any hope for my marriage? Maybe you're locked at home and things were, weren't great before, but now that you're in such close quarters, wow, things are really starting to heat up. Is there any hope for that marriage? Is there any hope for my health? Maybe you find yourself in one of the more at-risk positions and you're seeing people get sick here, sick there. People are suffering. People are sometimes even dying and you're thinking... You know, it's starting to feel like it's just a matter of time before I get this virus. And then what happens to me? What happens to all that I've, I've built for myself? Is there any hope? 
And some of, some of you who are younger, you're thinking, is there any hope for me? I mean, what about graduating from school? What about going to college? What about getting a job? What about getting married? What about accomplishing some of the things I've dreamed of? When it just seems like my whole world's flipping up upside down here. It doesn't seem like it's going to write itself anytime soon. Is there any hope? There is hope. The secret is actually in the sauce. It's in the sauce. The textures, the flavors the master chef intended from the very beginning were in a category of their own, far superior to anything else imaginable. We were people who were designed to reflect God's glory, the glory of the chef. But since then, we've been broken, haven't we? We're broken. The vibes have gone bad. The sauce has separated. Is there any hope for what is broken to be restored? And if so, how can we participate in that? How can we help it happen? The last several weeks we've considered what became of that 17-year-old boy who was sold. He was fitted with an iron collar, Psalm 105 tells us. He was dragged down to Egypt in shackles. There should have been no hope whatsoever for Joseph's relationship with his brothers. No hope at all. The sauce was broken. And yet here in Genesis 42 to 45, we see the impossible happening. It was likely that they never would have seen each other again, Joseph and his brothers. Never seen each other again. But a famine, of all things, brought them back together. It brought them back together, and it so impacted Joseph's family that Jacob, his father, said to his ten oldest, you guys got to go find food. It says this in Genesis 42 too, Behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale down in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So all the brothers, all except for the youngest, all except for Benjamin, they travel down to Egypt on a quest to find food. And it brings them straight to Joseph. Of course it did. Joseph was in charge of the whole famine relief program. He was the one that they came to. So naturally, he would be the one that they stood before. What a shock this must have been. As Joseph officiated, person after person came before him and brought gifts and brought money and said, please give us food. And Joseph gave them food and divvied out whatever they need, person after person, family after family. And then all of a sudden, (gasps) who are these guys? Ten guys who look very, very familiar. What a shock that must have been. Imagine the feelings. Imagine the aching, the anger, the almost irresistible impulse to take revenge. And Joseph could have done it, right? He could have done it. He could have snapped his fingers and guys would have been swarming on them and they would have taken them them away and they would have performed any uh, tortures that Joseph desired until he felt satisfied that they paid for their sins. But we don't see that happen. We don't see that happen here. Instead, what we see are a series of interactions in which Joseph tests his brothers to see if anything had changed within them. 
In 42.7, we read that he spoke harshly to them. I don't think anyone would fault him for that. He questions them. He, he then accuses them of being spies in a foreign land. They're spies. They came to Egypt just to scope it out and check out where the weak points were, maybe for another, on behalf of another nation, so they might report back. And Egypt, the great, powerful nation that it was, could be overturned. Finally, he accuses them of that. In the course of the conversation, they're trying to defend themselves. They're trying to say, no way, we're not spies. And they reveal that they have a father back home. Not only do they have a father, but they have a younger brother, a brother named Benjamin. And that gives Joseph the opportunity to test their love for their father, their father that they had wounded so deeply. Test their love for him. Test their love for their younger brother. Brother. Verse 18 says this, On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live. For I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. And they said to one another, In truth, we're guilty concerning our brother. In that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben said to them, Did I not, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. And it says in verse 23, they did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. But you see, in an instant, Joseph learned that they had since regretted that decision so many years ago. They regretted what they had done to him. And they knew it was wrong. And they anticipated that one day it was going to come back and haunt them. And they believed this was the day. It's finally here. And seeing their faces, hearing the distress in their voices, that must have brought back the haunting past. It was once again fresh and disturbing. In fact, so emotional was Joseph, he had to leave the room. He just had to get out of the room because he was breaking down inside. He had to conceal those tears. But he regains his composure, and he comes back in, and he orders the binding of Simeon, and then he secretly arranges for money to be put back into their bags, the money that they had brought for food. What are you doing here, Joseph? Are you playing head games here, or are you actually trying to help your family? It didn't seem like help when that money was discovered. When they discovered it, it terrifies them. What's going to happen now? What's going to happen when the Egyptians find out that we didn't pay for the food that we took? What's going to happen when we come back to get Simeon? I know some of us would rather leave him there, but dad's going to make us come back. What are we going to do then? They already accused us of being spies. Now they're going to accuse us of being thieves as well? Verse 28 says, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, 
What is this that God has done to us? When they arrived home and they told dad, he was wrecked. You've bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. And in no uncertain terms, Jacob lets his kids know, he lets them know, this is never going to happen. Because if this happens, if you take Benjamin, it would kill me. It would kill me. But the famine would continue on. Food would become scarce once again. And Jacob's resolve wanes. An empty stomach can have that effect on people, can't it? He reluctantly sends them back, now with gifts, now with double the money that they brought the first time, and with their brother Benjamin. Genesis 43, 16 says, When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. Now, this was unexpected, totally unexpected. In fact, this led Joseph's brothers to assume that they were truly doomed at this point. As far as they were concerned, this Egyptian was out there to get them. The gig was up. He was going to invite them into his home. He was going to secretly put shackles on them and enslave them. Can you imagine, though, how shocking it must have been when they arrived at Joseph, Joseph's house and he said, peace be to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received the money. And they must have been doubly shocked when Simeon was brought out to them, completely unharmed, healthy, his shackles removed. Triply shocked as this Egyptian sees their youngest brother, Benjamin, and then has to run out of the room. What is going on here, they must have said to themselves. What's going on with this meal that we're treated to? How on earth do people who have been accused of being spies now get served the finest of cuisine in all of Egypt. This is incredible. Is this our last meal? What's going on? And why does Benjamin get five times more than the rest of us? The next morning, they set off back home. They must have had some type of sense of lingering bewilderment here. Everything seemed too good to be true. It was. When Joseph's steward caught up with them, a cloud of dust all over the place, they sat in horror as they heard him accuse them of taking valuable items from Joseph's house. They swore. They swore, we, we know nothing about this. In fact, they said this, whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. Of course, they thought to themselves, absolutely not. There's no way we have this, these items here. Go ahead, search us. 
Search our sacks. Search the camels. Here, look, look, I got nothing in my coat. But when the steward found the money and the silver cup that the steward had planted in Benjamin's sack, verse 13 of chapter 44 says they tore their clothes. Every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. As far as they were concerned, this was the end. It was over. The end of everything. Everything had gone so horribly wrong. Everything was lost. Benjamin would be put to death. They would never again return to their father. Of course, that would kill their father. And there we have it. The end of the family. So much for the father of many nations. So much for that promise to our great-grandfather. So much for God's big plans. They destroyed everything. The sauce was inseparably broken. Or was it? That's when Judah speaks up. There had to be a way. There has to be some way. Family has to survive. Maybe, I, I, maybe I could save the life of my father if I, if I offer myself in trade for my, my brother Benjamin. Maybe that this guy, this Egyptian, would spare him and, and, and take me captive instead. Instead, Judah says in verse 33, Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how... How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. You know, I don't think Judah realized it at the time. How could he realize it? But what he was suggesting pointed ahead to the ultimate substitute that would come from his very own bloodline. The Savior of the world would step into history and make a way for the broken to be restored. And this is the secret. This is the solution to the brokenness of Joseph's family. But you know it's also the solution to the brokenness of our world. The solution that we so desperately need. It's the only solution. The only hope for the sauce to be restored. The disintegration, the dismantling, the, the division that we're now experiencing on this monumental scale, it can only be reversed by the forgiveness that the self-sacrificing Savior offers. And it begins in individual human hearts, doesn't it? It begins in human hearts as they recognize their brokenness as they cry out to him for help, and as they trust that he took their guilt away, paid for it in full by his own death on the cross, so that they might be washed clean and their broken relationship with God restored. And from there, the reconciliation is to be infectious. It's to be infectious. It's like a nuclear reaction where one heart impacts another and then another and then another and then another. Now it's not just individuals and their personal relationship with God that is restored, but people are now reconciling with each other. 
And as they do that, they're now walking in the footsteps of their Savior. They're laying down their lives. They're sacrificing themselves. They're, they're letting go of their agendas and their pride and their rights so that forgiveness might be shared and reconciliation experienced. This is exactly what happens here in Genesis 45. It's exactly what happens. Joseph sees the personal sacrifice that his brother Judah was willing to make, and he is cut to the core. How could Judah do this? This isn't the Judah that I remember. Genesis 45.1 says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers couldn't answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Of course they were dismayed, right? Of course they were dismayed. Can you imagine the thoughts that must have been spinning around their heads in that moment? Up until now, they thought their secret was safe. They may have wrestled with some type of lingering inner guilt, but at least no one knew about what they would done, but what they had done. But now, what if dad finds out? What then? What will this do to our family? What if our wives find out? What if, what if our children find out? Will they ever want to speak to us again? And what, what's Joseph going to do? There he is. He's crying. They thought they were in trouble before, but now they were surely dead, right? They were surely dead. Joseph weeping there in front of him, uh, front of them. What does this mean? Has he, has he just been stewing all of this time and now he finally sees us and now he's breaking down before our eyes. And all he needs to do is lift a finger and we are done. It's over. This wasn't looking good. But it was good. Verse 4 says, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. There are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here. No, but God. He has made me father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And he goes on to tell them, you know what? Go back home. 
Go tell dad. Get him. And get your wives. Get your children. Gather your households together. Pack up. Get your, get your livestock so that they might come and live here with me and enjoy some of the luscious land in all of Egypt. And that's followed by more tears. By heartfelt hugs. And by 20 years worth of catching up. What was broken? What we would have expected to culminate in brutal revenge ended in reconciliation, in restoration, in a beautiful picture of what the Creator planned to do even before it all started. Disintegration is everywhere, isn't it? It's everywhere. It's the work of the enemy, the separator. It's the poison that runs through our veins. Any and every opportunity is exploited so that God's creation pulls itself apart. But God's plan before the foundation of the world has been to bring it back together. We see that in Ephesians 1, don't we? Ephesians 1.10. It's a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Though human sin moves us apart, Christ was sent to bring us all back together. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.18, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of re reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is phenomenal. This is incredible. It, just like everything should have fallen apart in Joseph's family, our world left to itself it should just continually continue spiraling out of control and into darkness, completely separated. But the Creator didn't lead it to itself. Christ's sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, it's the radical twist in the human story. The pivotal move the move that the world needed to begin coming back together. Have you embraced that twist? Have you experienced that crucial turnaround in your life where you moved from walking further away, becoming more and more separated from your maker, to being made right with him? Have you embraced that twist? If you haven't, you need to trust Jesus. You need to trust him right now.
Stop walking away. Confess your waywardness. Embrace the reality that he took your sins on himself when he went to the cross. And that's where he paid for every one of them. So that the course of your life might have a new trajectory. No longer separation, but now headed toward reconciliation. Would you do that? Would you turn around and trust him? For those of you who have already been reconciled to God, You've placed your trust in Christ. You know that your relationship with God has been restored. You have a hope. You have a future. Are you doing your master's work? Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.20, did you catch it? Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. And then he goes on to say, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You see, if you have been made right with God, you are now an ambassador of his. You're a participant in his work that he came to accomplish. The sauce has been broken, but you now have the awesome privilege of helping bring people back together. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. He told Peter, from now on, you will be out there catching men. They're spread apart. They're going every which way. I want you to catch them. I want you to bring them back to me. Unite them. He told all of his disciples, go out. Make disciples. You see, children of the promise, those who have experienced that reconciliation, that restoration with God, they are to help others experience that very same thing and be restored to God and restored to each other. We need that, don't we? We need that. Fixing the sauce, it's fundamental to the Christian life. Jesus said in John 13, 34, he said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And that's not easy to do. It's not easy to do, right? It wasn't easy for Joseph, and it's certainly not easy for us. And that's because people hurt us. People don't agree with us. People are against us. Of course they are. Why wouldn't they be? They're still going down a path of disintegration, following the prince of the power of the air. And yet what the maker is doing is absolutely countercultural. It's diametrically opposed to the way everyone else is going. It's radical. It flies in the face of the flow. It's not easy for us to love one another. And it's not even easy for those of us who are believers, who have been reconciled to God, maybe are a part of of a local church body. It's not easy for us to do with each other, is it? It's one thing to be reconciled to a perfect 
all-powerful, all-loving God, but it's quite another thing to actively pursue peace with imperfect, in-process people. Even when we agree on something, we're tempted to divide because we don't agree enough or we don't share that same level of enthusiasm, loving each other, forgiving wrongs and pursuing reconciliation. Just like Joseph, it requires self-sacrifice. It means letting go of our pride and our agendas and our wounds and offering forgiveness. If fixing a broken sauce isn't easy, any chef will tell you that. Neither is fixing broken relationships. But just as God enabled Joseph to do it, so he enables us to do it as well. And he did something for Joseph that helped in that process. And it's the same thing he does for us. What did he do for Joseph? He did this. Over the course of Joseph's life, God brought him to a vivid awareness that he, not other people, are in, is in control. He's in control, not other people. Joseph came to understand that even when his brothers had dealt him a great wrong, God had a greater purpose for it. He told them in 45.5, remember this? God sent me before you to preserve life. Yeah, you put me in the pit. You laughed at me. You collected the money for my purchase to those, uh, those people passing by. But God was the one who sent me. You sold me. God sent me. Again in verse 7. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it is not you who sent me here, but God. He's made me a father to Pharaoh, Lord of all his house, ruler over all the land of Egypt. And this is so crucial for us to understand. There is evil in the world. Every day, we're pushing each other apart. But equally true is the fact that every day, God, the maker, is unfolding his plan working even through the wrongs that are being committed to accomplish his purposes. In fact, the greatest sin ever committed, the greatest sin ever committed, the murder of our innocent Savior of the world, that was fundamental to the greatest good that the world has ever known. So the next time you and I are tempted to hold on to bitterness, to plan out our revenge or our retaliation, remember that the crimes against you, God has meant to bring about his good plan of restoration. If you think that, that Christ dying on the cross was part of God's greatest plan, the greatest crime was the greatest good, and then perhaps, maybe, the little things that are done to you, that God is going to use those things as well. Maybe they're part of his plan as well. That's what helped Joseph forgive. 
That's what can help us forgive. One pastor said it so well. Believers who see and embrace who God is and what he is doing in life forgive. They forgive. What work are you participating in? The work of the separator or the work of the Savior? As you respond to wrongs, are you following Christ's lead by forgiving, by reconciling, by restoring, knowing that God is working in all of this? Or are you letting that pain fuel further separation? The secret is in the sauce. It's been broken. But the master chef is bringing it back together. There is hope for our disintegrating world, and it's found in Christ. And those who are His have that distinct privilege of being involved in that same reconciling work as we point others to God, point others to Christ as we love them and as we extend forgiveness to them. It's not easy to do. You and I might not always see how God is working right away. Joseph, it took, it took 20 years, 20 years before all of this came together. But one day we will see it, and it will be spectacular. Your God is good. He is in control. He's working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So as people who have been restored and reconciled to God, let's be about our master's business. Let, let, let's trust in him. Let, let your trust in him, let that move you, not only to embrace the forgiveness that he offers you, but also to freely offer it to others. Let's refuse to serve the separator. No more. We're not going to do it. Let's refuse to bring shame on the cross of Christ by perpetuating division and doing the exact opposite of what he came here for. Let's follow Christ's lead and lay down our lives so that we might be reunited with our maker and that we might be reconciled to each other.